verse of chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus was teaching by the Lake of Galilee up in the very northern part of Israel, historically uh, the source of the nation's fresh water supplies up until most recent times, home to 27 species of fish, the most common being carp and St. Peter's fish. St. Peter's fish is a fancy name for tilapia. That's all it is. It's a, it's a tilapia, but they, they are throughout the, the lake, and they are wonderful to eat. Beginning in chapter 4, uh, we saw that Jesus began to teach in parables, and if you've ever wondered why, it was to illustrate not hide truth, but it was put in such simple terms that the religious elite and snob, snobby people didn't understand it at all. They thought, well, that's way beneath them, and they just had no idea, didn't want to know what Jesus uh, was, was, but a parable is literally something that comes alongside of by way of illustration to help make a point. That's all a parable is. Uh, sometimes you can get people's attention by just putting a story uh, to the narrative, and Jesus did that often. Uh, it's usually a short story uh, using very commonly known illustrations from day-to-day first-century Galilean life. The, the common man instantly understood all of the parables that Jesus was making. But all of the parables make one broad point. The biggest mistake you and I can make in looking at the parables of Jesus is to overanalyze each jot and tittle. The purpose of a parable is to paint a broad brush picture of something, illustrating perhaps the kingdom of God. That was most often the topic of his parables. But to do that, you have to back up enough and see the beauty of the whole. Each of the parables would give a different facet of the kingdom of God, a different way of looking at it, a different way of thinking about it. But the parables were meant to illustrate, not hide truth. But there are none so blind as those that refuse to see. That was true of the Pharisees. It's still true of, of many people today. The common man would have readily grasped the principles being taught, whether it was moral or spiritual truth. But be careful not to press every detail. It's meant to provide a broad, single principle. You just need to find out what that is. Cross-reference will help you out as you look in the other gospel accounts of it. Uh, but a, a broad single principle, a broad truth, illustrating a single main point is what Jesus is trying to do. Uh, and Mark selected these particular parables because he's depicting the nature and character of God's kingdom. There is a kingdom coming. Today we live with the kingdoms of men who is under the headship of the God of this world, Satan himself. The kingdoms of this world will someday serve a different master. They will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But today we find a planet in chaos because it's a planet in rebellion against the single rule of the one true living God. Instead, they want to define God according to their terms. They want to define morality according to their own carnal nature. They don't want a God presenting a perfect law to them. They don't feel that they need a Savior. So the world is plunging headlong into an eternal damnation, and they don't want to hear the truth that you and I know. Why would they turn their back on God's love? Because it would mean forsaking their sin. And Romans 1 tells us that in the last days, people will prefer their sin. Read Romans 1 and see if that's not a, a, a very succinct narrative on today's society in the Western, 
in the Western world. Now, you'll remember that last week John had taken you through uh, the press of the crowds around Jesus was so much that he asked one of the guys, can I borrow your little fishing boat here and, and push it offshore? And when the lake is calm, uh, and I've, I've been in Capernaum, and you can just imagine a boat 20, 30 feet from shore, it makes a perfect amphitheater. The water just magnifies and projects. You can almost whisper in, in a boat 30 feet offshore, and every man, woman, and child hear exactly what you said. It's, it's uncanny. So Jesus was pushed off. Uh, and, and what a magnificent teaching. But by now in Jesus' ministry, the crowds are so massive because somebody discovered if they just touch him, they'll be healed. If they'll just touch him. And so people weren't just thronging around to listen to Jesus' teaching. As powerful as that was, they wanted to lay hands on him physically. Now, I don't know how many of you are xenophobic. I don't know how many of you love going to busy stores the day after Thanksgiving and jostling with crowds, but can I tell you, that's some people's idea of hell on earth. Well, you may be your idea of having fun and pushing shopping carts around and playing bumper carts, but imagine... Imagine 10,000 people, all of them trying to physically lay hands on you at the same time. Some of you already feel that heartbeat, that panic, oh crud, I don't think I could deal with that. And Jesus had to deal with that day in, day out. It never stopped. Everywhere he went, people would press in so hard just to touch him. And, and in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it said, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Uh, big crowds can be a, a horrible thing. And he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And so it became very commonplace. If you had anything wrong at all, just touch Jesus. You'll be fine. How many thousands and thousands touched him? I think there's an essential parabolic truth in that. Jesus is all you need. For you and I, whatever issues of life that you and I face, can I tell you, Jesus is the answer. You know, as we get older, more body parts start falling off or falling, uh, you know, into disrepair. You can start thinking, well, I, I, we've got answers in society today. So you, as you get older, you might get a, a cataract and a, a surgery restores your sight. You can go to people that promise you 20-20 eyesight. And you say, well, that's the answer. Then you go and find out you'll be using eye drops the rest of your life. And you can see distance, but you can't see close up. Or you can see close up, but you can't see distance. But they didn't tell you that before the surgery. <sighs> or hearing aids. Oh, you spend $6,000 on hearing aids. That's the answer. Science has all of the answers, right? And we, we've known for two and a half years, we are following the science. And so you go to get your hearing aids plugged in, and they put the ear mold in, charge you $6,000, only to find out it just makes the noise louder. Not helpful. Not helpful. Life is filled with those kind of disappointments if we put our hope in the wrong things, the wrong people. I'm not disparaging doctors or nurses or hearing aid specialists or anything else. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But our ultimate hope is Jesus Christ. It's not me. It's not a church or a denomination. Your hope must be in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, because you can't ride my coattails into heaven. 
My children can't. My grandchildren can't. As much as I would love to have that, you can ride nobody's coattails into heaven. You can't ride your husband's coattails into heaven. Uh, you can't ride your wife's coattails into heaven. You stand on your own merit before the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? I'm not know about him, but do you know him intimately, personally? And is that reflected in your life? It's easy to say, I love Jesus. It's easy to act holy when we come to church because there's too many other people watching. But what do you act like on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, the rest of the week? That really validates your faith or invalidates your faith. Actions always speak louder than words. I can't imagine the press upon Jesus, the hustle, the bustle of people constantly trying to touch him. You'll, and boy, that can wind up with some ruinous results. You remember, just it was just this past Halloween in Seoul, uh, South Korea, that 151 people were killed by the press of crowds. 151 people killed. Dozens and dozens more were reported injured, injured when they were crushed, when this huge, massive celebratory crowd got wedged into a small alley and people suffocated, died, and were trampled to death. Just imagine that happening to Jesus every single day of his ministry. That's the kind of press. The press of crowds can be dangerous. It can be dangerous to you as well. It can be spiritually suffocating if you hang out with the wrong crowd. We don't, we don't attach the same degree of danger to that as we do some out-of-control drunk crowd, you know, celebrating an evil Halloween to begin with. We don't think that's dangerous, but we're surrounded by a crowd of people here in Colorado Springs, El Paso County, Colorado, the United States, and this sinful fallen world that will suffocate you if you let them. The press of the crowds, there is such a press on you to accept the world's values instead of God's. There's such pressure to conform. You feel like, man, I'm being constrained by the world. There's so much pressure on me at work, so much pressure everywhere I go. How can I resist that pressure? How can I withstand that? The answer for you is the same as it was for Jesus. Your answer is God. You must turn to Him and turn to Him regularly. How often, Pastor Jim, is, are you talking about an hour a day quiet time? I'm talking about 24-7. Don't compartmentalize Jesus and say, I, I pull him out of the box on Sunday morning and Wednesday night for Bible study. I will not be compartmentalized, the living God says. You can enjoy his presence 24-7, but that's really up to you, isn't it? Or you can ignore him. You can turn on the television. There are, are any number of myriad distractions today, but there is that same press of dangerous crowds around you today. Beware. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful of the company you keep. Didn't Paul write the Corinthian church and say, don't you know that bad company corrupts good morals? In other words, you may be thinking, well, I'll be the single Christian presence among this crowd and I will convert them all. But the chances are far more likely that they will bring you down. Watch out who you spend that kind of of time with because the press of crowds can be a dangerous thing. The parallel passage here, what we'll be looking at this morning in, in Mark's gospel as Jesus calms the storm, the parallel passages are found in Matthew 8 and, uh, and Luke chapter 8 as well. Let me just tell you what the main point of, the, of this teaching is. This is not a parable. This is a historical narrative here. Do you know the difference? One's a story 
One's fictional. This is nonfiction. This is truth. This is actual, factual, historical events that are unfolding here. But so far, Jesus has shown himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, they were dogging him about the Sabbath. He's Lord over the demonic realm. He's been casting them out with a single word. You ever watch those uh, exorcisms on TV? It winds up being a two-week tooth canal root job or something, you know, and there's holy water and splashing and weirdness. And Jesus just said, out, and they were gone. Understand the power and authority that was given to Jesus and has been handed to the church. Power and authority of Jesus Christ is what enables anyone, not just pastors, to drive out demons. Listen carefully. You have as much spiritual power and authority as I have. Maybe more. <laughs> but people think, oh, I'm in a spiritual panic, or I heard voices in the room, or there was this cold chill, and oh, i got to call the pastor, and they got to come and anoint why don't you just take authority? Why don't you take the anointing oil? Why don't you go through the house? You commit it into God's hands, and you tell all of the demonic realm, be gone in Jesus' name. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Take authority. Don't cower in fear, not of people or of circumstance or of sickness or COVID or anything else. I'll tell you what, people are in paralysis today over these issues. You know, what's the answer to, uh, that society has? Well, wear a mask. Well, suppose I get COVID, any, then wear two masks. Where do you stop? Three, four, ten, twenty? Do you know anything about masks? Do you know that a KN95 mask only stops 95% of bacteria? But viruses are one thousandth smaller. A thousand times smaller. Masks don't protect you from viruses. Helps you keep your sputum to yourself, which is, by the way, a good thing. <laughs> but that's not the answer. We're following the science. Have you read the science? They just want you to carte blanche accept all this stuff. Can I tell you? The answer is Jesus. Keep a looking up for your salvation draws near. Closer now than when we first believed, absolutely. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, Lord over the demonic realm. He is Lord over sickness, disease, death. He's Lord over temptation. He's Lord over physical deprivation. He's Lord over his church. He's the head of this church, not Pastor Jim. Now he's Lord of physical creation, the wind, the waves, the storm. Can I tell you in a nutshell? <laughs> Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Work with me here for just a second. Did Jesus know this storm was coming? And he led the boys into it anyway. Have faced any storms lately? Oh, it's an attack of the enemy. Nothing is allowed to attack you except to come before the throne of grace first. Jesus is Lord of all. If God has allowed it, Satan means to destroy you by it. Don't get me wrong. He is your adversary. He is Satan. He is the fallen one. But if God allows it, there is a supreme reason and a purpose that he has that trumps anything that Satan could throw at you. Don't walk in fear. Don't walk in doubt. Don't walk in insecurity. Walk in peace. Walk in power. Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 35, that day when evening came, and what a day it has been. John has taken you through the previous part of the chapter. He is absolutely exhausted. It's easy for us to forget he's man. 
He's a man with the limitations that you and I have. He got tired. He thirsted. He was hungry. He knew what betrayal was like. Understand that while he was 100% God, he went through everything that you've ever gone through. He understands human weakness. He chose to embrace that human frailty when he stepped out of heaven to come to earth. Very long day for Jesus with the constant pressing crowds nearly suffocating him and his disciples. So they decide to head away from Capernaum southeast across the lake. And and it's a large lake. Don't think Pueblo Reservoir in lake size. No, this thing is 8 miles wide and 13 miles long. It's a big lake. And they're they're going to go to the region where the Gadarene demoniac uh, lives with another chained up friend of his. And that, that, that's another story for another day. But Jesus, the, short, the reason I bring this up in the short version is that Jesus is on a mission. He knows he's got to get from Capernaum down to the other end of the lake. He knows that. He ha- There's a divine appointment waited with a guy who's demon-possessed and has been chained up and needs salvation. Jesus knows that. He's absolutely exhausted, and so he's asleep in the back of the boat. But he's a man on a mission. Okay. In other words, if Jesus says, get me a boat, we're going to the other side, can I tell you, they are going to get to the other side. It's not a matter of, well, maybe what happens if a storm blows up. He's Lord of all. He knows these things in advance. Uh, Jesus, he is a man on a mission. He and his disciples will get there, although Satan will oppose every work of God. He does it with this storm that blows up. You do face a physical adversary named Satan. He's a fallen angel, but he's only a fallen angel. He was once an anointed cherub. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tells us all about his origins, where he was before he fell in his rebellion and swept a third of the stars of heaven out with him. But understand this. He only took a third of the angels in heaven with him in his rebellion. He's already outnumbered by God's forces two to one. He's already a defeated foe. Colossians tells us that Jesus triumphed over the devil by the cross. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross in payment for your sins and mine? Do you believe that he rose from the grave, that he's coming again? Then Satan is a defeated foe. Stop acting like he's not. We are not pawns to be slammed around the chessboard by Satan. We are not victims in this world. And we've got to stop playing that victim card. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor this. And oh, it's, I've got to. I mean, there are some people that are constantly in a state of chaos and emergency. Don't you hate hanging around those people? Where they never have a good word to say. It's always defeat and drudgery and discouragement, disappointment. And you just want to take them by the front of the shirt and give them a good shake and go, what is the matter with you? Where is your faith? That is what Jesus is going to say to his disciples. Here in just a few minutes, but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. We Christians, too, are on a mission just like Jesus and his disciples was. Satan will oppose us at every turn. Uh, You'll remember Satan had often hindered Paul in his journey in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. In that verse, Paul blames Satan for hindering him from returning to Thessalonica. Every time he tried to visit the Thessalonian brothers, circumstances opposed his doing so. As God most often works in and through our circumstances, so does Satan. He, can I tell you, that is how he most often works, is behind the scenes. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He wants to discourage and demoralize you. So he is subtle. 
He doesn't jump out of the closet in a red onesie and a pitchfork and horns and breathe in fire and he's got a tail behind him. I mean, what a caricature. That's what the world has done to Satan. What a joke. Paul attributed the, the interference that he was going through to, to the work of the devil. In Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, Paul speaks of Satan as a powerful adversary. But because God was working in and through Paul's ministry, Satan was opposing that. The closer you get to God, the more Satan will oppose you. Satan never hassles the lukewarm, uncaring Christian. He's got you on the track that he wants. Why would he hassle you? He's going to destroy you, destroy your marriage, destroy your children, and be the lukewarm Christian doesn't care about any of it. And so he is steamrolled by the enemy. The only problem with being a Christian and lukewarm, as Jesus says, it nauseates him. In Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea, Paul knew that Satan was out to destroy him. But he, like Jesus, was a man on a mission and knew that he was indestructible until God was done with him. But look at what modern society has done portraying the devil today. Now, we not only celebrate his unholy day of Halloween as the second most money-spending uh, event on the calendar today, more people spend money on Halloween than any other festival uh, on our calendar besides Christmas. It's a demonic holiday. Do you understand its origins? You ought to look it up sometime. Uh, we've written several papers on it available to the church. You can have one any time you want. But what the, what the world has done with devils turned him into a comic book character. Maybe that's because we're in the world of Marvel today and everything is, is Thor and the Avengers and, and whatever else is out there. But they've characterized him as some evil character in a red onesie with a demon goatee and red face, tails, horns, carrying a pitchfork. But uh, as Paul describes him in Ephesians, the devil called Satan in this verse, which means adversary. He's a real person. God created him as an angel of light, an anointed cherub, and allowed him to occupy, uh, occupy a place of praise and worship leader right around his throne. Satan was a praise and worship leader. That's why he hates it when you do more than sing songs. When you push through and enter into legitimate praise and worship, oh, Satan hates that. He, what he hears is like a, a cat's fingernails on a blackboard. That's, it just really jangles his nerves. When the people of God praise the one true living God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, he just hates that because he used to be a praise and worship leader. Oh, how the mighty are fallen. I enjoy praise and worship so, so, so much. Praising God, I think, is the highest calling of man. Satan will do what he can to oppose that. He'll plant things in your mind, well, I don't like that song. Well, that one didn't minister to me. I don't, I don't like the, the genre. Oh, he played a wrong note there. Oh, he slip up there. And we become critics instead of worshipers. Don't listen to that voice. Put that voice out of your head. It's not even your thoughts. It's Satan planting those thoughts in your head. You worship. Well, the people might, next to me might think I, I sound bad. Suppose you do. Well, if I just had a better voice, I'd sing louder. If God wanted to hear a better voice out of you, he'd have given you one. Apparently, he likes the one you got. 
You may not like it, but he loves it. So use whatever voice you have to praise his holy name. Do not turn it into song singing. It's, that's not praise and worship. That's song singing. The secular world does that. If I'm going to poke my finger in the devil's eye, it'll be through praise and worship. It'll be through the exercise of the power and authority that Jesus has granted his church. If you're tired of getting kicked around by the devil, start kicking back. Does that just make sense? You don't lay down. You're not a possum. You're a sheep. You're not a possum that rolls over and plays dead. Wouldn't make Satan stop anyway. You're a sheep. You're a sheep with a great shepherd over you. But when God kicked Satan out of heaven after his rebellion, uh, every moment since he has gone throughout all of human history trying to thwart God's plan and purposes and people, we understand that. So that's really the unseen forces at work behind the scenes here in Jesus calming the storm. So verse 35, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's get halfway across and sink. He says, we are going to the other side. Leaving, verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. Why did he insert that, just as he was? Exhausted, absolutely bone-weary, tired, exhausted. And they took him just as he was, probably hungry as well as tired. Well, he hadn't had a good night's sleep in a long time. They took him just as he was into the boat. There were also other boats with him. I mean, there's a number of disciples that would not have all fit in one small fishing vessel. And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped just as he was. It's easy for us to forget that Jesus has endured everything, every kind of physical hardship that you and I ever will. He knew loss. Apparently, he had lost his father early on, and he became the head of the family, taking uh, his father's place. He must have been, at this time, after all the jostling crowds, absolutely exhausted, tens of thousands of people having pressed him and dogged him and jostled him and grabbing at him just to touch him for, for days now. But Jesus, know, if, if you've ever been bone-weary, tired, Jesus knows how you feel. If you've ever been disappointed at work, he knows what that feels like. If you've ever been betrayed by a loved one, Jesus knows what that feels like. That's why Jesus is the answer to everything that you all ever face. He's already been there. Wherever you're going in this life, can I tell you, he's already been there. Jesus became like us to identify with us, to take our infirmities upon himself, I love what Philippians 2 has to say about Jesus, who being in the very, in very nature, very substance, the very image of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was not on a power trip. He was not a, a modern-day politician looking for a higher office like Satan had been. But he, Jesus made of himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Have you ever wondered why the incarnation of Jesus was necessary? Because God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But you can't nail a spirit to a wooden cross. As soon as mankind sinned, 
the necessity of a Savior became obvious. But somebody's going to have to die for those sins. So Jesus had to become a man. It was a part of the eternal plan of God that went on before time began. Hebrews describes Jesus as our high priest able to sympathize with us in our trials. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted, tested in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. So when you're being tempted and tested, the same word in the Greek language. Satan is tempting you to sin. God is testing the reality of your faith. So the same word describes both of those phenomena. All depends on your perspective, Satan's or God's. Jesus, fully man, he hungered, he thirsted, he felt pain, he knew betrayal, was tested and tempted in all ways just as we are, and yet was without sin. His victory is our victory. Do you understand that? His victory is our victory. Greater is he who is in you, that's Jesus, than he who is in the world. That's Satan. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Say all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Having, rec having canceled the written code, the law, with its regulations that was against us, that condemned us, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, spiritually speaking, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Our victory is Jesus' victory. He triumphed over the devil by his cross. Our victory comes when we embrace our cross, daily deny ourselves, and follow Him. Do you understand the cross is a call to come and die? To die to sin. You must die to sin and selfishness and drugs and alcohol and all of the garbage of this world. The cross is a call to come and die. If you're not willing to die, don't even start. Don't even start. Jesus said, count the cost, because many of these last days come and say, oh, I believe in Jesus, oh, he's marvelous, oh, he's wonderful, and then a trial hits and they're gone. No longer walking with the Lord. Jesus had shared that with us in the parable of the sower. Some look like, oh, I'm all about Jesus, and I'm wearing my Jesus jewelry, and I put my Jesus bumper sticker on my car, and First trial it hits, they fall away, they're gone, they don't come back to church, they don't repent, they don't go to church anywhere else, they just fall away. Second Thessalonians 2 predicted there would be a great falling away before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. COVID happened two and a half years ago, and half our church left and never came back. That's true of every church I know. There has been a great falling away. Satan is still alive and well and wants to do anything he can to rob you of the joy of your salvation, of the victory and power that are your inheritance in Christ Jesus. The church today often just rolls over and plays dead, but Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan and his hordes triumphing over them by the cross. All we have got to do is pick up our cross day by day. Live for him, walk with him. 
Yoke yourself together with Him. His victory is our victory. He's given us the power to move mountains in prayer, cast out demons in His name, reach the lost, heal the blind, raise the dead if He so wills. He wants to do those things in you, on you, and through you. You say, well, I've, I, I've never done that before. Consider getting closer. Consider tightening up your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Intimacy is what I'm advocating. Do you have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you, is he, do you just know him as a passing acquaintance? A historical figure that died 2,000 years ago. And rumor has it he rose from the dead. Or is he your personal Lord and God and Savior? There's a huge difference between the two. Are you pursuing him? He pursued you or you wouldn't even be here this morning. Are you pursuing him? Other boats were with him, <laughs> not only to, to fill all of the other disciples. Can I tell you this? They, they unearthed, back in 1986, they unearthed accidentally a, a first century fishing vessel from the northern end of the Lake of Galilee. It was about 27 feet wide, or long, excuse me, and about seven and a half feet wide, but very, very shallow in draft, just drafted a couple of inches of water. So the sides of this fishing vessel were, you know, not, not tall at all. I mean, waves could come, but usually the Lake of Galilee uh, was pretty calm, especially during the night when they fished in, in the first century. But they unearthed one of those boats. Well, you're not going to jam a dozen disciples in those size of vessels, and so they took many boats uh, with them. And you're thinking, I'd have taken a boat with a little higher sides. In fact, maybe I'd have taken like a battleship, you know, something large that, that is, is fairly seaworthy. Um, can I tell you, it's not the size of the ship that's going to save you from the storm. I'd rather be in a boat with Jesus in a storm than outside the boat in any kind of situation without the Lord. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I would have gotten in a boat and said, Lord, if we're going down, I'm going down with you. In fact, why don't you just kind of hug me while we go down together if that's what's going to happen. But you said we're getting to the other side, so I'm believing you. It takes faith in the middle of a storm to see to the other side of the storm. That's what most people don't. They get so obsessed with what's in their face at the moment that they forget this too shall pass. Abraham Lincoln famously said that in 1865, whatever trials we're facing today, this too shall pass sooner or later. I don't know when. That's in God's hands, not mine. But I can tell you this, it's going to pass. You know who wins in the end? You and me, because of Jesus. You win. Satan doesn't want you to know that. Ships don't sink because of the water around them. Ships sink because of the water that gets in them. Don't let what's happening to you get inside of you. That's the moral of the story. I know life is stormy, a stormy ocean. You got your trials and tests, I got mine. We all do. Yours are different from anybody else's in the room. But don't let the storm get inside of you. Inside rules the Prince of Peace. Inside is the one who loves you and gave his life for you. If you're in touch with him, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what you'll experience, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That means you're not given to excess in anything. 
That's the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. So don't let the storm out here sink your boat. Don't let the storm out here get inside of you. Jesus is already inside of you. He's already in the boat with you. Don't forget that. He'll never leave us, never forsake us, Scripture says. Yet sometimes we act like, oh, he, he took off and I'm going through this all by myself. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is with us. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. It is so critical to remember that. Verse 37, when furious squalls blow up and the waves started breaking over the boat so that it was nearly swamped, Jesus was in the stern asleep on, on a cushion and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Man, is there a whole lot packed in that. The wording in Matthew's account of this, as well as right here in Mark, implies that it was a storm of supernatural intensity. It wasn't your usual squall that commonly blew up as the cold mountain air from the Lebanese mountains descended the valleys and collided with the warm, moist air over the, the Sea of Galilee, which is over 600 feet below sea level. It, it's one of the lowest points on planet Earth. Uh, the only one lower is the Dead Sea that it drains into. But this is a supernatural storm. This is Satan attempting to destroy Jesus and his disciples. Understand this. Satan is not out to hassle you. He's out to destroy you, destroy your wife, your husband, your children. He's not playing games. We approach spiritual warfare as if, no, it's tic-tac-toe or something. We don't take it seriously. Oh, I don't even want to talk about spiritual warfare. You think that's going to make Satan go away? To deny the reality of spiritual warfare? We face an adversary. That's when we cling to the promises of God. But greater is he who is in me. If you don't cling to Jesus, Satan will cling to you. Your choice. This morning I set before you death and life. You can do this God's way, and your marriage will prosper. Your children will prosper. You will prosper in all that goes on because I've got God's Word in Deuteronomy 28 on it. Or you can be lukewarm. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to wind up divorced. You're going to wind up with your life shattered. You know who wins in a divorce situation? Nobody. Satan. You're right. Your children will never forgive you because you chose to embrace Satan's ways instead of the Lord. I, I, I talk to people all the time, and I talk to them about intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, but they've never been intimate with anybody. And so they have a, a struggle getting intimate with the Lord Jesus. Oh, I had a wretched father figure. You should have known him. Then you would understand why I don't get close to my heavenly father. It sounds more like an excuse than anything else. God gave up everything to save you. His son died to forgive your sins, and you give him excuses that you had a bad earthly father who was nothing like your heavenly father? How lame. Man up, woman up to that. I don't care. You know what? I had an abusive alcoholic father. I know what physical abuse as a child was like. Been there, done that. That's why I cling to my heavenly father, because he is so much that my earthly father never was. 
But I cannot use my earthly experiences as an excuse to keep God at arm's length. But many people do today. I pray you're not one of them. If you're a marginal Christian this morning, you need to repent of that with all of your heart, with tears in your eyes, before you walk out of here this morning. That is a sin unto God, and it'll lead you to commit the same blasphemy that these guys are about to utter. These are his own disciples that had cast out demons and healed the sick and done miracles by Jesus' power and authority, and they're about to blaspheme against him. They need to grow in intimacy, as well as you and I do. Big lake, storms blow up regularly. In fact, there's been 10-foot waves recorded on the lake as, as late recently as 1992 in the Jerusalem Post. I, I looked it up. My first century fishing vessel that was unearthed in 1986 uh, would give anyone pause about crossing a lake in such a flimsy little vessel on this. But here's the deal. At least four of these men were seasoned fishermen that had spent their entire lives on the lake, and they're scared to death. This isn't a natural storm. This is a supernatural storm. The storms you and I go through in life, they are not natural storms. You go, I've never even heard this happening to somebody, but it's happening to you. It's a supernatural storm. Understand who's behind that. Satan is. Your only hope, your only life preserver is Jesus Christ. They're scared to death because it's a supernatural storm. Satan has caused this storm with one purpose in mind. God has allowed it with another purpose in mind. Satan wants to destroy you. God wants to teach you something through it. That's why Jesus has allowed his disciples to go through this experience. He's with them in their trials as he is with us in ours. All storms, you want to write this one down, all storms have a God-given purpose. You don't understand it, but that's where faith comes in. There is no Scripture that, where God says, I want you to try to figure out what I'm doing. In fact, did you know that it's a sin if you try? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps. He promises to direct your steps. But what he says in there is, stop trying to figure me out. I'm God, you're not. What's your IQ? What's God's? In comparison, we're something less than a protoplasm, a puddle of goo, an amoeba or something, you know, and yet we try to figure out, what's God doing? Stop that. Don't even go there. Trust God. You know what faith is? Faith says, I don't need an answer. Who am I to question what God's doing and why He's allowed it? Faith says, I I trust in Him. I believe in Him. He'll get me through this as He's gotten me through every storm of life so far. Every storm of life so far. Storms come and go. Like Abraham Lincoln said, this too shall pass. Take a deep breath. This too shall pass. Start looking at things from an eternal perspective. What you're going through today is not the end of life on earth as we know it. This does not compare, what you're going through does not compare with Armageddon. 
does not compare with global thermonuclear war. Let's get a handle on our perspective. Okay? Stop whining. Stop complaining. Stop murmuring and grumbling. Look where it got the nation of Israel when they tried that against Moses. God was not a happy camper with them. Trials and tests, attacks from the enemy, they come and go, trust God. He's still the master of the, the wind and the waves. But the child of God stands firm. These things shall not move me. I read that a long time ago in the King James Version of Acts chapter 20 and 24 when Paul had been told, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to handcuff you. They're going to throw you in jail. Man, it, it's going to be tough on you. And, and, and they didn't want to see the, their beloved apostle go through it all. But what Paul said was everything. These things shall not move me. He'd made up his mind before anything happened. Whatever happens, I'm not going to let it shake my faith. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to be in the Word of God. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be in praise and worship. And God will grant me the victory, this side of glory or the next. Paul was not afraid of the predicted imprisonment that was awaiting him. You and I need to have that same mindset. Whatever's coming, whatever I'm going through today, I'm, I'm not going to let it upset my apple cart. My faith is intact. My hope is eternal. I trust in the God who created everything. There is nothing beyond His ability to intervene in. I face nothing that He's not greater than. That's the mindset that we need to have. Don't let anything upset you. How are you doing? Jesus is on the throne. I'm doing great. Yeah, I hobble because I'm old. Yeah, I got a limp here. Yeah, I got this issue. I got a runny nose. I... I got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Can I tell you the antidote to fear, worry, and doubt, and discouragement and depression is a closer walk with the Lord? Intimacy. Intimacy. Maybe you're not a huggy-touchy-feely person, but you can be healed of that. Maybe you're an introvert. You can get prayer for that, too. Maybe you're a person who's never known intimacy, but God's calling you to it this morning. Put all of the excuses aside. Oh, I'm just not that kind of guy. Just let Jesus wrap his arms around you. Let go. Let God. I can't speak to the women in this room because I'm not a woman. haven't been one for quite a while. But I can speak to the guys in this room. God has cracked lots harder nuts than you. You ain't all that. You're not as strong as you think. You're not as big as you think. You're not as independent as you think. You're not Clint Eastwood. You're not John Wayne. You're just a man like me, like every other guy in this room. But if you've never been intimate with anyone, I understand the tendency to keep God at arm's length. Understand that's what Satan wants you to do. Keep God at arm's length. Draw in close, please. Draw in close. You know the cool part about coming back from vacation, sitting on the front row with my, my two grandsons? And all they wanted to do was close in. All they wanted to do during our praise and worship time. And one of them put my arm around him so I could, I could touch him and he could feel the nearness and that. The little one cuddles up close to me here, put my arm around his neck. For a second there, I felt like Jesus feels about you. You're his sheep, and he's the great shepherd. 
And all he wants to do is draw you in. Draw you in. Let him. He loves you so much. So stop with the Clint Eastwood routine. Stop with the, well, I've never been a person known as huggy, touchy, feeler, intimate. We're talking about the God of the universe here. You're a child of God. There is no place that describes you in Scripture as an adult of God, but a child of God. Nothing gives fathers greater joy than for their children to desire their attention. I hope he has your attention this morning. He loves you so very, very much. If you're not in a storm now, you will be. And when it comes, you want to do and say what Paul did. These things shall not move me. doesn't matter. I trust in God. He has my eternal purposes in mind and heart. He's got this. What does the Bible tell you to be worrying about? What are you supposed to be anxious about? To do otherwise would be in disobedience, wouldn't it? And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You say you are a Christian this morning. Are you actively pursuing intimacy with him. Because storms are coming. You think the economy is in shambles now? You ain't seen nothing yet. Storms are coming. The wise man or, or woman of God is going to be prepared for those storms by tightening up their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, being in the Word of God, surrounding yourself with praise and worship, fellowshipping with the saints, investing in the kingdom of God, communing with Him. The once a month we celebrate communion, looking for fellowship opportunities. So together we're stronger. God's got this. The child of God stands firm. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, that's our part, with thanksgiving, appropriate for the season, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes He delivers you from the storm, and sometimes He gives you peace in the storm. Doesn't matter to me, as long as I'm walking with Him, I'm good to go. Maybe there's something that I need to learn in this storm so he's not going to take me out of it quickly. That's okay. I don't mind at all. I don't mind at all. He is sovereign. He, his purposes will prevail. Do we have faith in Jesus' word? The disciples were told, we're going to the other side, guys. They didn't believe it. They got overwhelmed with the immediate circumstances in their lives, and they forgot what Jesus said. Don't forget what Jesus says. Be in the Word of God often enough that you're reminded of what Jesus says. Read your New Testament. Read your Old Testament, same God, yesterday, today, and forever. Or would we be ones to rebuke Jesus like the disciples did? Look at verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushions. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Can you imagine saying to the Son of God, don't you care? 
That's blasphemy to me. I can't even imagine the disciples saying that out loud. They may have thought it, but he's sleeping. And boy, I'll tell you what, if you're tired enough, you can sleep through just about anything. How do I know that? You mean personal experience? <laughs> if you're tired enough, you can sleep through anything. Jesus is so exhausted. And I'm sure they're bailing with both hands in bucket, trying to get the water out of the boat. And they're probably irked at Jesus. Why don't you wake up and help us bail water, dude? We're perishing. Don't you give a rip? How come we're busy and you're loafing? Don't you see how fretful and anxious we are? You know, when you're going through a crisis, people are going to ask you, why aren't you losing your head? Everybody else is. Why aren't you freaking out? Everybody else is. Why aren't you going, oh, I'm so anxious, so fretful? Why are you so peaceful? That's easy. Jesus is in my boat. Who's in yours? Who's in yours? Ships don't get into trouble when the water's on the outside, but when you let the water inside, that's when your ship starts to sink. Whatever storms of life that are brewing on the near horizon, don't let them inside your boat. Keep them external. Continue to remember God's perspective. He's not worried. He's not frazzled. He's not hassled. And so when they wake Jesus up, here's, here's the first thing Jesus said. I mean, look at what it says. Look at verse 39. Does it say Jesus woke up, freaked out, and said, man, what a storm. I ain't never seen nothing like this. What are we going to do? <laughs> That's the, what we'd like to think. Well, he, he's going to freak out just like me. <laughs> not only we're not supposed to be anxious about the storms of life that blow up, First Thessalonians 3 and verses 2 and 3 says we were destined for them. It's the plan and purpose of God. Why? I don't understand. I don't, I don't even ask him. Paul says, we send Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well, we were destined for them. It's part of the plan of God. He's doing things in and through those trials, apparently, that can't be accomplished other ways. Don't ask me to explain that to you. He said it. I just believe it. To me, he said it. I believe it, that settles it. There's no room for disagreement or argument there. Peter says this, why do you marvel? <laughs> First Peter 1 and, and verses 6 following, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Yes, we do have trials. In verse 7, he continues, these have come. Here's why. Here's why. You want to write this down, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You're socking away eternal rewards by the trials you go through successfully. How do I go through a trial successfully? With Jesus. With Jesus, if you were looking for another magic bullet, I don't have one. First Peter 4.12 says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you were suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, 
so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Then in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What is God judging in our trials? Our faith. He's testing our faith. Trials, I want to write this down, your trials show everyone the reality and depth of your faith. Your trials show everyone around you. You don't think of that, but they show everyone around you the reality and depth of your faith. James goes one step further, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ in James 1 and verse 2 says, count it all joy. When I go through various trials and tribulations, count it all joy. But do we obey that command? Jesus said if we love him, we would obey his commands. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You hang in there. These things shall not move me. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The storms of this life test the reality, the quality, and the quantity of our faith. That's why God allows them. He loves you. And you think if He loved me enough, He'd deliver me from all trials. He loves you enough to carry you through those trials. Because there is a lesson that needs to be learned there. Verse 38, Jesus is utterly exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And then the disciples ask the dumbest question in the history of dumb questions. Don't you care? The Son of God who gave up heaven to come to earth to save sinful man and be rejected and hung on a cross, you're asking him if he cares? If he didn't care, he'd still be in heaven and said, you're on your own. You sin? You like your sin? Great. Hope you like hell. He came because he cared. I think the question borders on blasphemy. So verse 39, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, just like he had rebuked so many demons. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, two simple words in the Greek, quiet, be still. Both of them an individual uh, imperative command in the Greek. Literally, be still is be muzzled, like you'd muzzle an ox from eating the grain while he's treading it out, or, or like some people muzzle a dog to keep him from barking. So what Jesus said in the vernacular is, zip the lip. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan, according to Ephesians. In other words, catastrophes and storms and hurricanes and Katrinas and, and things like that. Don't blame God. Blame the God of this world who is Satan. He's out to destroy all of us, to push to the destruction point, our faith. Many will give up on their faith going through trials enough. But Jesus says one word, hmm, quiet. Quiet. Same terminology used when he rebuked and silenced demons. So that means that this is more of a spiritual battle than a weather catastrophe. It's a spiritual battle. 
I wish everyone that went through hurricanes and tornadoes had that same perspective. It's, it's more a spiritual battle than a weather crisis. But look at the result. Jesus says two words, and, and look at the result. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river. That's what Jesus gives. In the middle of the storm, your greatest need is Jesus because he's the prince of peace. If Jesus can calm the stormy wind and the waves, can he calm your anxious heart? Of course he can. Will you let him? That's really the question. Will you let him. Have you ever known people that seem to be in constant turmoil? They just seem to move from one catastrophe to the next. And everything is an Armageddon, epoch-ending, end-of-the-world scenario for them, whether it be a hangnail or a rear-ender in rush-hour traffic. They seem to be in constant chaos, crisis, and upset. I think that some people really like that because it draws so much attention to themselves makes them look like the victim, and everybody then feels sorry for them. They have no victory, but they play the crisis card with such constancy that after a while you wonder, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Any old crisis will do for those people. They will milk it for all it's worth, when in fact Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Verse 40, then after rebuking the wind and the waves, he rebukes his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus didn't wake up and say, wow, what a storm. And instead, he asked, why is it that you have no faith? The storm couldn't disturb Jesus, but the unbelief of his own disciples did. So he rebukes the wind and the waves, then he rebukes his disciples. He rebuked them for not having faith. Faith in what? Not faith in the boat. It's sinking. We have no faith in the boat. It was full of water, looked like it was going to sink. Why would he rebuke them for not having faith? Because if you go back to the beginning, what he first said is, let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's go under. He said, let's go over to the other side. That's where we're going. He's the Lord of creation. That's where they're headed. That's where they will wind up. So when Jesus said, let's go over to the other side, there is no way that they could go under. Your ship is secure regardless of how much water you've let in. If Jesus is in the boat and we're getting to the other side because he commanded it, you see, this is God speaking. And God's word must come to pass. They had the Lord of the wind and the waves with him in the boat. He's still master even if he's asleep in the stern. He's still master. He's got this. Whatever catastrophe you and I go through. And then the disciples asked the second silliest question in the history of silly questions. Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And you just want to say, you dummies. 
You've been with Jesus for years now. You've watched him raise the dead, heal the sick. He has done amazing miracles, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and you think that's a big deal? He created the wind and the waves. He's God. He created all of creation. 130 billion different galaxies spin over our heads, and we think of speaking to the wind and the waves is a big deal. 400 billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. And he flung them out there with the span of his fingers. You got a problem that's bigger than his ability to meet it? You got, you got a problem that needs more power than the creation of the universe? Put it in perspective. Who is this? The only legitimate answer, he's the son of God. He's the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's God in flesh. He's the master of the wind and the waves. Of course he is. The miracles that Jesus did in part were meant to convince his disciples of his deity. He wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't just a man. He was more than a prophet. He was greater than Jonah. He was greater than Solomon. He was greater than the temple. More than that, he, he's God incarnate. He is God incarnate. And they had to come to that point that he's in charge of everything. They'd given up everything to follow him. Jesus gave up everything to come from heaven to earth. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Had an epiphany at my house yesterday. We decided no gifts. It's about Jesus. Let's keep it simple. People in these economic difficult times are wondering, well, how can I afford Christmas? Well, that's easy. Don't buy anything. Say, well, they'll be disappointed. And tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Let's get the, the guy out of the sleigh and, and out of his r white, furry, trimmed red hat and put Jesus back on the throne. What do, what do we say? Instead, we are afraid of, what, offending somebody? Really? How about we're offending the Son of God? How about we're offending the, the Father who sent His Son to save us from our sins and we're more concerned about appearances and, and offending somebody on Facebook because we use the word Jesus? Every miracle that Jesus did was to, to not only show people his deity, but to increase their, their faith in, in him as Messiah. He, he is, in fact, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Doesn't matter if he's asleep in the back of the boat. God is with us. You say, well, it doesn't feel like it. I didn't say anything about feelings. Strike that word from your vocabulary. Feelings should only be attached to pizza that's too old in the refrigerator or something like that or the dog that nipped at your ankles. Okay, that maybe feelings has a place there. But don't ever use that word in conjunction with God. He is God regardless of your feelings. God is with us. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6 referred to him as they were terrified because I think this first time they came to grips with the realization, we thought he was just a carpenter and a teacher. We thought he was just a miracle worker. We ranked him up there with, you know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the other prophets. He, he's more than a prophet. He commands the wind and the waves. He's not just a guy who casts out demons. He controls the universe. That means everything that happens to me. He's got right there in the palm of his hand. Everything he has allowed me to go through, like he allowed them to go through this storm, will be for their ultimate benefit. They can't see it right now. 
You can't see it going through your individual trials at the time. It, you need an eternal perspective. You've got to look longer term, down the road further. What is God doing? What is he, he accomplishing? He's going to conform you to the image of his son. <clears throat> Can I wrap this up in as much as I have seven minutes to spare? <laughs> Let me drag this out a little bit longer because I, I love this passage. I'm not qu quick uh, to leave it. <sighs> Write this down. Bring a, pull out your crayon, your marker, your pen, your pencil, your Sharpie, whatever you got, your uh, texting device. Or, I'm all thumbs. I can't use one of those things. Why is it that the keys are always a quarter the size of your thumb? I don't understand that. So every time I've tried to ever text anything with my thumbs, not only does it make my thumbs ache, but I send messages that nobody can read anyway because I've hit six keys with one thumb stroke. <laughs> Write this down. Life is a boat ride. Now, there's some theological depth for you, right? <laughs> well, the Lake of Galilee isn't a deep lake. It's 80 feet to about 160 foot deep, and that, that's all it is. It's not a real deep body of water, but plenty deep enough to drown people, plenty deep enough to upset your boat. Life is a boat ride. So it, it, during this boat ride, it's your choice to panic or turn to Jesus, live in fear or faith, your choice. Obedience or disobedience. We're kind of like a, I, I have at times felt like a rubber band in the hands of God. Have you ever felt like, like, oh, God is stretching me through this trial. Oh, I'm not sure I can, oh, I just feel, want to curl up in a ball in a fetal position and feel sorry for myself and get everybody else involved in my pretty party and, oh, God is stretching me. And then God says, no, 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 that, that's not, this is stretching. You take your breath away and then you realize, but I didn't die. I'm okay. God, my God got me through this. I never thought I could have endured anything of that magnitude. God's in the business of stretching your faith. Don't resist that. Let him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what your limits are. He promises to not let anything come your way that is more than you can bear. God will not allow you to be tempted, tested, trialed above that which you can bear, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. But in the trial, what am I going to do? Panic or pray? Fear or faith? Obedience or, or disobedience? Or the rubber band in the Father's hands? But faith is kind of like a muscle. You know, use it or lose it. And the way to make it stronger is to keep using it, stretching it making it bigger and stronger. But you have to work it. you got to go through. You know, the old adage in gyms, which I absolutely hate, no pain, no gain. And I go, great, I don't want muscles anyway. I'd like to have a mountain of faith, but I don't care about my, the condition of my muscles much. But can I tell you, whatever you're going through this morning, I'm not minimizing what you're going through. Nobody minimized the fact that 12 disciples were on the verge of being drowned to death. I'm not minimizing that. I'm asking you to refocus your attention from the trial to, to the one who's already defeated the tempter. He's already defeated him. Satan doesn't want you to know that. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? Do you act like that? Do you talk like that? Or is it constantly about you, your problems, your issues, your whatever you're going through? God's already given us the victory eternally. Trust God. He's got this. He's got this.
doesn't take a deep lake of water to drown you. It just takes the wrong focus. Your boat's as shallow as theirs were. You trust God. You give Him praise and honor and glory in the midst of life's difficulties. So if you didn't get anything else out of this morning's sermon, I hope you wrote this down. Life is a boat ride. Life is a boat ride. Sometimes you're taking on water. Pray harder. Pray harder. Master, the wind and the waves is still in the back of the boat. It's never going to leave you, never desert you. <sighs> He's got this. Let's stand and close together in prayer, shall we? Father, I know you got this, whatever we face. And sometimes the trials are severe. Satan is out to destroy us, and you're out to cause us to refocus and to walk in faith instead of in fear or doubt or insecurity. With all of my heart, I want intimacy with you. And I so desire that for my friends here. Would you bless them, Father, please? 